Every Americans used to be able to count on the U.S. Supreme Court to expand our rights. Well, those days are certainly gone. Perhaps we can do something. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Having a sense of the unpredictable and all too often counterproductive vicissitudes and wild swings of public opinion, even in the 18th century, America's founders, in creating the third branch of government, the courts, intended to bring some stability, which would carry on into the distant future, preserving, protecting, and stabilizing the foundations of our democratic republic. But the unforeseeable and incredibly powerful assault on our constitutional rights, which is today shocking Americans, calls into question the idea of original intent as the six right-wing Supreme Court justices of 2022 now advance in defense of their truly extreme agenda, decimating our traditional constitutional rights. Our guest today, Professor David Schultz, explains in his essay in Counterpunch what makes today's justices, quote, appeal to history and tradition so dangerous. The article is titled The Supreme Court and the Abuse of History, Rights Will Always Lose. I don't think they didn't used to, but we'll get into that. Not many would have imagined the current court's determination to whittle away our rights as protected by Supreme Court precedent. When I was growing up, there was a long and widely appreciated consistent expansion of our rights, rights that were not there in the 18th century. Citing what they call originalism, the court is blatantly determined to return to the days of the law exclusively serving white propertied men. Yes, in the 18th century. David Schultz is our guest today, and he's a distinguished uh, university professor in the departments of political science, legal studies, and environmental studies at Hamline University, St. Paul, Minnesota. His latest book is Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter. Yikes. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you say the Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Roberts is the most reactionary ever in American history. Now, historians, I find, are usually reserved in their assessments of people and players in history. I don't know a lot of Supreme Court history, I'll confess. But in what ways is the Dobb decision so shocking, so comparatively reactionary, given some rather extreme decisions in the court's history? Tell us about that Dobbs decision and why it's so so shocking. Okay, what's unusual about Dobbs is that not so much that the court has overturned precedent, and there have been many cases in history, maybe not that many, but a few cases in American history where the Supreme Court has overturned its own constitutional precedents. But when it's done so, it's done it in the way that really expands rights. And so let me give a couple of examples here. Sure. Um, there's a notorious, notorious decision in the 1890s, Plessy versus Ferguson, oh, yeah which declared that separate but equal racial segregation was constitutionally okay. Brown versus the Board of Education overturns that. Um, another famous case, um, um, which was Bowers versus Hardwick from the 1980s, that declared that sexual intimacy among same-sex couples was not, a protected, was not protected. The court overturns that in Lawrence v. Texas. And we've got a couple of other examples. All of the examples of the court 
overturning past decisions um, has really been to expand rights. What Dobbs does for the first time in American history um, by the Supreme Court is to take a right that was recognized by the court, a constitutional right that it re- that recognized, and to overturn it and say it's no longer a right. And and that's what makes Dobbs, among several other opinions in the court, incredibly reactionary. But we could just talk about this for a few minutes here. Sure. Is it basically says, here's a right that was created um, that we recognized, um, that we believe that the Constitution effectively, um, if not ex- maybe not explicitly, but um, implicitly recognizes a right to privacy that includes a right to terminate pregnancies. This is what we said in Roe. 20 years later, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court reaffirms that and says, yeah, there's a few problems with the Roe opinion, but guess what? Uh, an entire generation of women have come of age believing they have the right to control their reproductive future. We're going to reaffirm, um, uh, we're going to reaffirm Roe. Mm-hmm. Dobbs basically says, we don't care about the reliance interests of women. We don't care what a generation of women came to believe. We don't care uh, that that the, we created a right. We think that decision was wrong. Um, we think that the court should have never decided Roe. We're just going to reverse it and throw it back to the election process so that women um, can fight for um, reproductive rights um, in the electoral process. Absolutely amazing. And I, I've been through this uh, for many, many years as a uh, recovering politician. I, I was in the state Senate. And I just we, It was very, very difficult to get young women to join up with uh, abortion rights movements because they thought it was there. It was just rock solid. They, they, they didn't live through what I lived through and what so many other women lived through and how much pain and harm is going to come. And I wonder about this, the personal makeup of the six on the nine justice Supreme Court that renders them, these six, truly unique in the court's history. Turning their backs on precedent to to not expand rights, but to shut them down. Uh, What about these six? Is there something about them personally that, that is so unique? Yeah, a couple of things. First off, um, they are all were appointed by Republican presidents. And I think all of them um, or almost all of them are Roman Catholic also, too. Um, And the reason why I mention this is for two reasons. One is that Roe didn't get overturned overnight. Uh, There had been mobilization by conservative Catholics, evangelicals, um, and I'm just going to say misogynists mm-hmm. for 50 years, for 50 years, they, they were working very hard, challenging state, challenging Roe, passing laws, electing state legislators. And more importantly, or maybe just as important, um, working to elect presidential candidates and presidents who pledged, such as Ronald Reagan, the first George Bush, the second George Bush, the Donald Trumps, who pledged and say they would appoint justices to the court um, who would overturn Roe. Um, and, and eventually they were successful in doing that. So one, we should have seen this coming yeah. um, in terms of the path being laid out. But second, um, among those justices, Thomas, you know, we've got Alito, we've got Roberts, we've got um, people such as um, Gorsuch and so forth. And of course, you know, um, uh, all the, you know, Kavanaugh, these are all um, either mostly Catholic 
or conservative religious, and they have gone out of their way in other opinions to defend the rights of, of, of religion. And so you basically have a case, Dobbs, that not only takes away uh, rights from women, but it imposes a particular religious view upon America uh, that mm. that not all of us share. You know, just for example, um, maybe um, some Catholics believe that abortion is wrong. Um, many other American Catholics have a different view. People who are of different faiths do not have opposition to abortion. And so it's a decision that's troubling um, in many ways because it's giving uh, a, a small group of people the prerogative to say, we're going to impose our political morality, our legal morality on America, and what we're going to do is take away rights from women. And again, I come back to this and say, leave the political process to decide what you get to do with your uterus. There are those in the pro-choice community who are, are angry at Democrats for not addressing and codifying reproductive rights since the Roe decision. But is it not accurate? that overturning precedent is so unusual that the Democrats could not imagine flipping precedent on its head. So what about that yeah. criticism of the Democrats? I think you're absolutely correct. Don't Generally, don't talk about my research in my books, but I'll talk about it here, is that I just did a book that came out um, called Constitutional Precedent and Supreme Court Reasoning, and I looked ah. at all the instances between basically the creation of our constitution in 2020, uh, all the instances in which the Supreme court had overturned its own constitutional precedents. And that number is about 145. That's 145, oh. 145 times out of roughly 26,000 opinions. And um, we're looking at a, a, a percentage that is dramatically less um, than, you know, you know, it's like five one hundredths of one percent. So it's an incredibly small percentage. And so you're right. It's 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 incredibly rare. And then again, as I pointed out a few minutes ago, all the situations in which precedent had been overturned have resulted in what? An expansion, mm -hmm. a create a creation of rights. Mm -hmm. And so so on one level, you would have never expected um, that the, the court would have overturned him. On top of which, Roe versus Wade, on top of which, for many of those justices, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Amy Comey Barrett, they stood in front of um, of a U.S. Senate and said that Roe was settled law. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which what? They lied. They, they, lied. Lied. they lied to the American public and they lied to, sen to the Senate. They did. It's, it's uh, You would think... Supreme Court lying, no, it doesn't. It's like it doesn't go together. It just doesn't happen. But they did. They clearly did. And that it strikes me as, as rather unusual. I, 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 don't, I can't imagine, you know, just flat out lying there, but they did. And you say that this Dobbs decision, which, the Dobbs decision, which uh, supported Mississippi's uh, ban on, on reproductive rights, you say that is an abuse of history in its method of legal analysis and reasoning. What do you mean yeah. by that? Please explain. Sure. Okay. So, so one of the things that the court does is to try to say in the majority opinion, well, there's, there's no, um, 
language explicitly in the Constitution that protects the right to abortion. They then argue, right. and say, right, which, is true, which is true, yeah. they then say that um, we don't have a, a history of abortion rights being protected um, th- throughout American history. Well, that's wrong to start with because for the first 50 years, and in many cases the first 100 years of the Republic, there was no language addressing abortion one way or the other. Right. Um, most states didn't even start to criminalize it until post-Civil War. Um, and mm. then what do we make of the last 50 years where we've protected it? Okay, so 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 that's the first sort of abuse here, kind of you know, for those of us who are law professors, you know, we call this we call this law office history. Kind of like, sort of, sort of like it's like really kind of back of back of a better. It's kind of the bastardization of history to get to, get to the point that you want to have here. But the second thing that 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 I'm that I'm troubled by is is this argument that says that well, if we're going to create rights. There has to be some longstanding traditions that support why we think such a right is important. And the reason why that's also a bad use of history is that if we think about the origins of our Constitution, as I say to my students, um, a Constitution written by a a bunch of of white, rich, slave-holding people – they did not believe that there were too many rights that many people in general had. Remember, they believed that people of color were, were property, that yep. women didn't have the right to vote. Um, they believed um, um, in, in all kinds of things that we no longer believe. And if you simply say that the only rights that we have are which were respected um, through what longstanding traditions throughout American history – we basically write off all political reform in this country. Mm. We basically we say that you know it doesn't matter that our political morality has changed in this country. That we now come to expect or, or, or reflect the fact that what women are equal to, supposed to be equal to men, or people of the LGBTQ community should have rights, et cetera, et cetera. As I've argued at one point, when when longstanding traditions and rights come into conflict, longstanding traditions generally beats rights. Because why? We have a history, unfortunately, of 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 discrimination, yes. of denying people's rights. So that's a problem. And then the third problem that I see is 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 just a total misunderstanding by the majority of American law. And I know this is quite presumptuous for me to say, since I don't wear a robe and I'm not sitting on the Supreme Court. But our legal process is based not just on the text of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, but it's text plus precedent. Is that is that I describe our Constitution and Bill of Rights um, and our legal tradition as, as a chain novel. And so the framers of our Constitution mm. wrote, wrote the first draft of the, no, of the novel. Um, and then what happens from there is that subsequent Supreme Courts, subsequent members of Congress, the American public, write, the next chapters. Each generation writes the next chapter afterwards. And our law is built upon um, these these chapters being written over time. And for them, what they're saying is that, well, if it's if it's not in the text, we don't care what history has suggested, how precedent has evolved, we're gonna yank us back to seventeen eighty seven. And that's part of the use and abuse of history also. Hmm. There's a lot to think about there. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about 
the Supreme Court and the challenges to democracy, uh, our rights here. Our guest today is Professor David Schultz, who uh, wrote an article in Counterpunch, which I always enjoy, called uh, The Supreme Court and the Abuse of History, Whites, Rights Will Always Lose. And I almost said whites, whites will usually win, as it turns out. Correct. Correct. <laughs> they use the term originalists. Just Antonin Scalia insisted he was an originalist when it came to carrying out the intent of America's framers. Uh, the, the, the world in which the framers lived openly served white men of property. So in a way, does not that back up the argument that people like Scalia were indeed originalists? Do they mean only white men of property have rights? What about this originalist notion and the use of that term? I mean, it sounds sort of attractive. Well, that's what the framers intended. It sounds attractive, but let's, again, let's now look at history in a different way. The best notes that we have on the Constitutional Convention were kept by James Madison, uh, who was the recording secretary. When James Madison, the convention ended, he said that those notes could not be published until after his death, uh, which put, put us in what, to the 1840s or 1850s. And the reason why um, I mention that is that Madison explicitly, as well as the other framers there, did not want the conversations um, regarding the, the, the liberations to be made public. If that in and of itself doesn't speak to the fact that they were not um, interested in having their intentions dictate the interpretation of the Constitution, I don't know what does. There's also no indication that the framers ever said explicitly, because there's nothing in the Constitution where it says this document has to be interpreted in light of what we, the framers, say it is. And so from a historical point of view, we went many, many years without even knowing what the framers were thinking um, or, 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 what the, or what their intentions were. But even beyond that, I mean, we, how do we truly understand um, what a bunch of, uh, as I like to say to my students, a bunch of dead white guys were thinking 200 years ago, 250 years ago, in a world that was still mm. encompassed by horse and buggy. And even if, even if we could somehow figure this out, what they intended, why should the views of a bunch of dead white rich slaveholders still determine how we think about the world today? I don't know about you. I think democracy is about the consent of the living the living governed the present governed not the, those who died 250 years ago uh, there, there, this whole idea of originalism really starts back during the reagan era when again people like anthony scalia but also ed Meese, who was the attorney general mm. started started arguing for intention intentionalism uh, for originalism and the whole idea was to argue against this idea um, that somehow rights evolved, meanings evolved over time. And it was a clearly overt agenda in terms of saying, mm -hmm. we're going to freeze the Constitution back in terms of whatever it meant or whatever we think it meant back then. William Brennan, who was on the Supreme Court at that one time, um, responded to Ed, Ed Nice by saying that originalism is nothing more um, than arrogance cloaked in humility. And it was a wonderful line because he was pointing out that first, what, you're, you, you think you can figure out what the framers are. We don't really know what they were thinking. But also, 
you're just making that argument to hide your real political ideology. I've written a couple of books on Scalia over time. And you know, people always wanted to say, well, Scalia had a neutral methodology in terms of how we did things. And one of the things um, I did in one of my books, and I did a, another book with a co-author, um, is to point out that if you actually looked at who the winners and losers were, um, you found clear patterns. Clear patterns in terms of um, certain people, such as gays, such as women, um, such as prisoners, such as the, let's say, the, the underprivileged in our society, they always lost. Um, if you had a neutral methodology, you would actually think what? Maybe sometimes they would win, sometimes they would lose. But no, it's a methodology originalism that really becomes, as I describe it, a facade or a lattice work upon which you build a political ideology to justify your your outcomes. Yeah, it seems, yeah, the, the, the idea, the originalism that, uh, you know, rich, white, slave-owning men uh, had the rights and nobody else did. I can see how that would appeal to a lot of people on the hard right these days, the Trumpist right, because that's really what they mean. I make America great again. That's what they mean. You know, and I know it. White men rule. Nobody else does. Ah, interesting. So, you know, I, I guess I would certainly not be an originalist, but I, and, you know, as you talked about, there's something called uh, the maturing of society. I mean, Earl Warren, what? William Brennan, and others argued that rights need to be looked at in terms of evolving standards of decency that mark yeah. the maturing of society. What, what does that mean, the maturing of society? And how does that, uh, where does that fit in with, with the evolving of rights as perhaps the Constitution intended? Maybe it didn't. I don't know. What, is, what does it look like, the maturing of society? Well, I think what they're referring to is almost something similar to what I was talking about in terms of first, think about the law as a chain novel. You know, it's about this idea of like each generation, it's almost almost, almost a Thomas Jeffersonian notion of each generation getting to sort of place its imprint upon the Constitution. But it's also the recognition of the fact that over time, um, our conception of, of democracy, who's part of democracy, who gets to have a say of uh, has changed again. Seventeen, you know, seventy-six Declaration of Independence, um, or seventeen eighty-seven, you know, when our Constitutional Convention occurred. You know, you know, it was a great debate: were we a democracy or not? You know, there was no other sort of country in the world that was in a comparison. You know, everything else is monarchies or principalities or something. So we could have a really great debate regarding: okay, were we democratic or were we not democratic? Um, mm-hmm. uh, as a constitution, but but the way I, I I like to think about it is to say that clearly, who we thought had a say in the political system back then was far narrower than it is now. Mm-hmm. Thurgood Marshall, former Supreme Court justice, said it so well on the bicentennial of the Constitution, and he said, "We the people did not include everybody." He said, um, "We the people was what." rich white guys with property who are of particular Protestant faith um, mm-hmm. and, and has certain social economic background. And his argument was it took a civil war, a civil rights revolution, and about 27 constitutional amendments to even get us closer to the idea of, of a broader sense of, of, of a demos, the people. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm getting, getting at here is that we've expanded our notion, at least in theory, of who the we the people should be. And we've also expanded our notions um, in terms of 
what rights people should have. Again, think, think you know, I, I say this to my students, um, um, you know, who, who are wonderful, but, but of course young, you know, when I point out to them and I say that, you know, prior to the 1970s, um, that the presumption was in our society that women could be treated as second-class citizens. The presumption was that that women could be excluded from jury duty. Women could be um, 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 excluded from, from 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 jobs. Could be could be dismissed for a whole bunch of reasons. I said prior to the 1980s, yeah. uh, sexual sexual harassment was not considered to be a form of job discrimination. Yeah. And I said part of what what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did was to reverse the presumption and say, no, the presumption isn't that women are inferior to men. The presumption is that women are equal to men or men are equal to women or they're just equal to one another. And laws that that challenge that should be presumptively unconstitutional. And so there's this sense of evolution. Or I think about when I was growing up, um, very young, young, you know, that, that people who were gay or lesbian were sometimes were sometimes viewed as what abnormal. Yeah. Um, what is it? The American Psychology Association mm-hmm. in their first edition or was it what their diagnostic statistical manual listed being homosexual um, as as a mental disorder. Right. Um, uh, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm hoping that most of us have evolved, have evolved to realize that just because you're female, your skin's of, um, of a different color, you speak a different language, or you love somebody who's, who's, not, who's not a, you know, whoever, if you love somebody, regardless of who it is, right. there's nothing wrong with that. That's the evolving standards of decency, that, that we as a society should be better, better than a world in 1787, yeah. where, well, I think at one point, we had 200 crimes where we could, um, on the books across states, where you could get the death penalty, where, where again, women couldn't vote, people of color couldn't vote, poor people couldn't vote, where we treated, um, was it, um, other persons, because we, we, we were ashamed to use the word slavery, we treated other persons as three-fifths of whites. Right. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I hope most of us have evolved <laughs> in those days. I tend to think we have, and as as you talk about it and describe it, you know, frankly, I've always loved the Constitution. I, when I was in the state Senate, I, I used to tell people I worked in a law factory. We made laws, but it was based on the Constitution. And what's evolved, I, I like to think, and maybe the, perhaps, maybe this is naive, the original intent was having to do with we the people. That's what we're mm-hmm. talking about here. We the people. It didn't, as you described, we the people only meant, you know, a small group of slave-owning white men as we know. But now we the people is is something else. The population, and quite frankly, a lot of people on the right can't <laughs> stand it. They cannot yeah. stand it. That's why they, they, they talk about uh, something America has always been proud of is is welcoming refugees from other oppressive areas uh, so that you know they can have their freedom and and that they be you know part of of we the people and these right wingers uh, they they called it an invasion these yeah. people of darker skin were invading our country and I can imagine in 1787 
well, I don't know, I wasn't around then, but uh, that, that there may have been people who, and, and there have been, certainly, there's been a lot of discrimination against immigrants from certain countries throughout the American history, especially in the mm-hmm. early part of the 20th century. Uh, and But we the people, that's perhaps the intent. And what this Supreme Court that there is now with the six right-wingers, uh, I, I you know, they they're going along with it with the Trumpist idea that it's not about we the people it's about we the right people. <laughs> that's, that's right. That that's right. And it's and it's so I think it's two dimensions here. It's about who are the people that are entitled to the democratic promise, right. and also what does that democratic process entail? And the reason why the Dobbs opinion is also so dangerous is especially if you look at Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion, where he says, it is now time for us to maybe rethink same-sex marriage, Mm -hmm. um, 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 rights to contraceptives, and a few other issues. And the reason why he mentioned it is that that strict textualist notion, if it ain't in the text, um, it doesn't exist unless it's part of longstanding traditions. Think about many other rights that we enjoy in this country that are not written in the Constitution, but of which the court has said it's implicit in, in sort of, again, either on revolving standards of decency or we find them sort of inherent in the Constitution. For example, there's nothing in the Constitution that says uh, that we have a right to vote. The court has largely crafted that mm. from opinions. There's nothing in the Constitution that says um, that we have a right to procreate, to raise our children the way we wish. Nothing in the Constitution says that we have a right to use contraceptives. Um, nothing in the Constitution says that that um, uh, I have a right to freedom of association. All of these are rights that the court has said they're implicit in the document. Mm. Again, going back to the language here, implicit in our conception of of what it means to be an evolving society um, um, that recognizes freedom. And if we take the methodology of of the approach that the court used in Dobbs, and of which very explicitly, very explicitly, uh, Clarence Thomas was advocating, we now put on the chopping block some of the most uh, cherished and important rights in our society, again, anywhere from right to marriage, to reproduce, to raise a family, to vote, to a whole bunch of other issues. Yeah, there is this authoritarian strain. It it amazes me how these uh, people carry the American flag and, you know, wave it uh, proudly. But what they're talking about is authoritarianism and not freedom, not democracy. Uh, they, They want very few people who are actually entitled to participate in the democratic process, fewer and fewer. It's it's shocking to me. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, its history with Professor David Schultz, uh, who is a professor at, uh, at uh, Hamline University of Political Science, Legal Studies, and Environmental Studies. And in his spare time, he writes a lot of books. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, what what the what the rights are, what the intent is, and how much the Dobbs decision, the reversal of Roe versus Wade, uh, is such a, a big deal. Um, and I I must say, I ever since the Roe decision, I've, I've talked with other people in the pro-choice community, 
And we've also sort of quietly to ourselves like wondered whether the stated basis of the Roe versus Wade decision, the right to privacy, was really strong enough to withstand constitutional challenges. As you say, there is there the right to privacy is not in the Constitution, and I've always wondered like, uh oh, maybe maybe we sh- they shouldn't have based it on that. Was it an error to base road the road decision on the right to privacy? It was not so clearly stated in the Constitution, so didn't that weaken the basis for Roe, given that it was based on a right to privacy? Possibly, yes. But at the time, we also have to think about the fact that that we've got a series of precedents before it about, again, the right of married couples to use birth control, the right of unmarried couples to use birth control, a Supreme Court opinion saying that laws that prevent uh, people of different races from marrying right. violate, violate. So at the time, it looked like it, it made sense to do this. At the same time, I'd say the jurisprudence on the Equal Protection Clause addressing issues of, of sexual or gender discrimination was not well developed. And the reason why I mentioned that, I got Ruth Bader Ginsburg at one point said we would have been better off to 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 locate uh, the right of um, reproductive freedom for women in the equal protection clause to deny them the right to be able to women the right to be able to control the reproductive future um, is a is is basically discrimination. Now I I fundamentally agree with her um, on that argument, and that would have been a that might in retrospect be a better way um, to locate locate um, reproductive rights, but at the time. The, the law wasn't well developed in that area because of what the precedents were not there, but they were there in terms of of being able to do it out of a right to privacy, and that's part of what gets us back to what Dobbs does here. Dobbs basically says we don't care that Roe was a precedent. We don't care that Roe was built off of precedents that basically created where it is. We're just going to disregard all that and go straight back to text. Now, what this also suggests is that it it is possible, not with this court, it is possible for a future Supreme Court to come back, overturn Dobbs, but do it on equal protection grounds. Mm. Now, that, that becomes a possibility, but it, that's not something we're going to see for a while because the the conservatives on the court uh, with the exception, let us say, of Clarence Thomas, are relatively young, and they're going to be there for a while. But mm. but there are things that could have been done. Going back to a question you brought up earlier, you know, there were times during the Clinton administration, during the Obama administration, where Democrats had pretty good control of the House and the Senate, yeah. as well as you know, presidency. They could have, having seen um, the attacks that were going on against Roe said, let's just for the heck of it, let's codify Roe just in case or something like that. Uh, so, but I'm not, but I'm not going to blame Democrats completely on this one mm. because again, as you pointed out before, it's so rare to overturn precedent, but that's going to probably have to be our fix. Now it's going to have to be legislative fixes, but what's dangerous about that. Yeah. So let's say, so let's say in a state this year, I pass, uh um, reproductive rights legislation, but then two years from now, uh, lose control of it and it switches to the other party and the other party takes them away. 
we're going to see what mm. women's again. I'm going to go back to it. women's uteruses now become a a pawn or a or what a chip in the political process in terms of to be bartered back and forth. Unbelievable! I just you know here we are talking about this, and we're in 2022, and it's going back to uh, the 18th century where women were, were just property, but a lot of people uh, just want that uh, apparently. And I wonder about. Uh, people are worried. I've, frankly, I've never bought into the slippery slope argument that if you take this away, the next one. Mm -hmm. But I, I am a little concerned about that, since the right to privacy is not spelled out in so many words in the Constitution. The wall of separation between church and state is not spelled out in so many words in the Constitution. You mentioned Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, and that that particular case, and this and its significance going forward. I, I, tre I mean, I was on the board of the ACLU, or here in New Hampshire anyway, and, you know, I treasure it. We've got to have a wall of separation. And that decision allowing uh, prayer after a football game, I think it'll be interesting when there are Muslim prayers and other stuff like that. But uh, wh what about this uh, wall of separation and the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District case and its significance? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Because we've got a series of decisions that started back 1950s, 1960s, and even up until I'm going to say a few years ago, where the court has said that um, no um, um, school-led prayer in public schools right. uh, um, or school functions, no posting of of things such as um, let us say the Ten Commandments, et cetera, et cetera, and and these have been kind of hallmark opinions that have been defended over time. But what we've also seen is that, uh, especially this court under under John Roberts, is chipping away at that wall of separation yes. in terms of almost to the point now where you've got justices such as Alito and Thomas saying, well, it would be a violation of free exercise if the state doesn't actually support religion in some situations like that. Oh. Uh, if, 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 I, if, I, if I'm going to invoke the intent of the framers, um, I'm going to come back and say that they would be rolling over in their graves if they were alive because clearly one of the things that our framers also understood was history. And how they understood history was looking at the history of Europe and of England, of the religious wars, where where you had different um, religious warring factions fighting out for, fighting amongst one another, and fighting for official government rec recognition. And part of our, our founding, yes, it's a religious founding, but it's also a commitment to religious liberty. Yes. The idea at the end of the day that, yes, we understand that people may believe, some people may not believe, or who knows wherever they are, mm -hmm. but but getting the state getting involved in religion um, not only corrupts the state, it corrupts religion. Um, and at the end of the day, it leads to more conflict. And the, and the, and the, that's, that's the lesson of, of European history. That's the lesson that we've, that well, I'm going to actually, I'm going to invoke a different line here. Bob Dylan. I live in Minnesota, so I get to invoke Bob Dylan yeah. at this point. He's from Minnesota. <laughs> Duluth. I think Bob, yeah, Duluth. Bob Dylan, has one of the greatest lines ever, I think, um, in, in music, when he talked about how um, people who who claim they have God on their side, oh, and how um, how when people who claim that wind up what 
more carnage, more destruction, more damage has occurred throughout history by invoking God uh, and claiming God is on your side. Uh, and sometimes I wonder is if you claim God is on your side, uh, I would really like to have a conversation with God and find out <laughs> if in fact that's true. Uh, and, and I suspect it's not. Again, invoking God is like invoking the intent of the framers. It becomes a, again, a lattice work upon which you justify your beliefs. And so, so, so this is a court, we've got to read it in tandem here, um, abusing religious history, abusing political history, um, but it's selectively using history or, or misusing it to get to particular outcomes that it wants. Uh, again, I live in two worlds. I'm a political scientist and a law professor. And I walk into my constitutional law classes and I will say to my con law students, the accepted legal model is that the justices are neutral, the court is neutral, it's a neutral methodology upon which decisions are arrived at. Then there's a political science model that says that law is all about outcomes. It's about political preferences. The court is a political institution. And unfortunately, we are closer to the reality of the political science model, that that it is not, as Alexander Hamilton said, the court is not the least dangerous branch that merely has judgment and not will. This is a court right now um, that is, again, the most, I think, the most reactionary in history or close to it. Mm-hmm. It could be what Roger Taney with Dred mm-hmm. Scott versus Sanford, or it could have been the, the court that invalidated most of the first New Deal. Uh, but mm. in, in those situations there, the court w- um, was not going backwards. I mean, it's true. Dred Scott was a deplorable decision. But in many ways, Taney was right. The framers probably didn't intend for, for, for people who were descended from Africa um, to be citizens. He probably was correctly reading, although deplorable, correctly reading the framers. Uh, uh, however, this is a court that seems to be saying, we don't care um, how we've evolved. We're going to go backwards. Mm. And I always had that faith in in the neutrality of the court, the, the, the picture of, of justice blindfolded holding uh, the balance uh, that, that we could rely on on them that they they were supposed to be kind of neutral arbiters but the practice of that is exceedingly difficult apparently because you know who who gets to uh, determine you know and how these decisions get get made what about the the Kennedy versus Bremerton school district case and wh- how does that affect you know freedom of religion and the wall of separation between the church and state well, again, it breaks it down because, as you pointed out before, they're now going to let you know people do uh, an after after football game or sporting event prayer. Mm. The court says, "Well, there's a long-standing tradition in terms of letting people do prayers at sporting events, et cetera, et cetera." I guess it's perfectly okay here. Well, the way again, at one point there was a long-standing tradition of 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 prayer in public school. There was a long-standing tradition. Of, of basically forcing people at one point to do pledge of allegiance and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so this again, this opinion chips away dramatically um, at, at a, again a whole bunch of of um, let's say free exercise and establishing the cause cases that we have out there. Okay. I want to talk about for a second here in terms of this case Please. here. Go ahead. My my all time my all time favorite opinion 
and it's West Virginia versus Barnett. And it's Justice Robert Jackson, right? It's in the middle of World War II. And it's about um, a, a law that requires people to do the Pledge of Allegiance in class or students you know, in school, right. otherwise face probably expulsion or discipline or so forth. And it seemed back in the 1940s, we hated members of the Jehovah's Witness faith. They, they were the subject of so many cases wow. we picked on them. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses um, um, did not believe um, in doing the Pledge of Allegiance for their religious views was the idea that this was somehow um, putting a, a, an, Im, a, a, an earthly image of head, head of God. Again, I'm not an expert on Jehovah Witness faiths, and so so I won't go into you know all the details here. But what the Supreme Court did was to strike down that law, and and Justice Robert Jackson has two of the most gorgeous lines ever um, in in American law, and I'm paraphrasing both of them. One of them, he said, "No official, high or petty, gets to prescribe what is orthodoxy in American politics." And his other great line. Um, was was to basically say no individual um, should rely should rely upon what the vicissitudes of the political process to protect their rights. Um, rights are something that stand outside the political process. And again, I'm, I'm not describing it anywhere with near the brilliance and elegance that Robert Jackson did. Um, but his point, I think, is fundamentally correct: is that nobody gets to define orthodoxy, and B, our system is about what. The idea of saying that my fundamental rights do not depend upon the ballot box. Um, if I were to tell you that, listen, you could only um, um, read a particular book if if the majority allows you. If I said to you, mm-hmm. you could only do a podcast uh, and disseminate ideas if if you got majority vote. I would hope you and every listener and everybody in America would say that's wrong. And Justice Jackson was fundamentally correct with those two statements here. And this is what Dobbs also misses, that we're going to now empower, as we've already seen across the country, a bunch of petty officials, Mm. state legislators, to say, this is what you can do with your uterus. Mm -hmm. We are now letting also um, potentially um, schools and public officials pick and choose, because you're right. Today, it was, a, it was a Christian prayer in that case, right? What right. are we going to do when it's going to be a Muslim or right. a Buddhist right. or, 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 or <laughs> whoever it's going to be? Right. And suddenly, we're, we're going to see that certain rights don't matter or it's, all, or it's only what? The white Christian rights, which are respected by what? Longstanding traditions that get to be protected. Boy, one would think so. And rights being outside the political process... I I want that to be true. I so want that to be true. Uh, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a major, you know, foundation of democracy here. Uh, the the courts and people, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, there's the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And it's supposed to be kind of outside politics and just protect our rights, all of our rights as, as citizens of America. Our guest is uh, Professor David Schultz, who's got an article in uh, Counterpunch titled The Supreme Court and the Abuse of History. Rights will always lose. And studying history, I, I find fascinating. And the fact is, it is history is t- eminently interpretable. 
You can have all different views on history that they're not necessarily right or wrong. What are, are your concerns about the use and abuse of history in the context of the history of the Supreme Court? No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, this this notion that somehow history is telling it like it was, you know, which used to be an old model of it. Um, historians reject that idea. It's impossible for any of us to go back in time and observe, I don't know, um, the Battle of Bunker Hill. You know, every it's, it's interpreted. Um, history has always looked at through the lens of the present, that we reflect upon it. Yes. What, what might be a significant fact that we think is important today may not stand the time the test of history in a hundred years from now, it may not be a part or may be looked at in very different ways or something like that. Or for those of us who are a little bit older, um, how history now judges 60 years later, things such as the, the candidacy um, or the presidency of John F. Kennedy, clearly things change over time. What I'm getting at here, there is no objective past. Right. The past is always understood through our interpretive lenses. And, 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 and so this idea of saying that that we can definitively say what 37 or 38 people who disagreed amongst themselves, what they thought they agreed upon, also when they did not want their opinions published um, till many years after the document was was. Um, um, was buried, you know, basically told many of them died, many of them died, um, um, all speaks to the fact that why we, we can't really figure, figure out really what it meant. I mean, if I were to ask you the question, um, do you think somebody who grew up in a horse and buggy era before telephones, internet, and social media, what, what would James Madison think about whether or not um, comments posted on Facebook are protected by the First Amendment. I th- I think it's it's an impossible question to ask. Right. Uh, 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 I mean we I mean it's 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 it, 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 just no way we could explain it because uh, Scalia would say, well, we can kind of infer what they would think. I don't think you can infer what mm. they can think uh, because we're at we're, they're in such different contexts and in such different worlds. How would we even figure out what the, you know what they were what they were thinking what they mean today? There's this famous scene from I I can't remember if it was Annie Hall or what movie it was mm. where where they're walking out from a movie talking about uh, what the the um, uh, the author must have meant in the film. Right. You remember that scene there? Yes, I and, do. And then, and, and then they bring the author out and they say, you're totally wrong. It has nothing, it has nothing to do with it. And that's sort of I think of what's going on here is that if somehow I could bring those dead guys back, they, they, might, they might very well tell us and say, we didn't thought, think of this. We have no idea. Or no, um, that's not what we meant. Or no, we were only thinking about us white guys you know, who have money and who are Christian. Um, and and, and so, so to me, it's, it's fundamentally the wrong question to ask um, in terms of what they thought. We you know, like to think it's about we the people. What is meant by yeah. we the people? And that's what the Constitution, I don't know, it seems to me that's what it's, what it's about. And you talk about changes. The, the weapons that there were in the 18th century compared to the weapons that there are now. And there are people, as you know, who seem to worship the Second Amendment as if Tell us, please, about another of this court's controversial decisions, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association's case. we got to take a few steps back before that New York case. Prior to 
um, 2010. The U.S. Supreme Court had only really ruled on, a, I think, four cases involving the Second Amendment. In all four of those cases, the U.S. Supreme Court said the right to bear arms um, is a collective right to be understood within the context of the military. There was no individual right um, to bear arms. Okay, I will give the National Rifle Association enormous credit. What I mean by enormous credit is that they worked hard lobbying, planting legislation, supporting um, justices of the court, and they convinced the court um, in the early part of the 21st century that, in fact, uh, this is the Heller case, Washington D.C. versus Heller, that that the that the, first, that the Second Amendment contained an individual right to possess a gun in, in the home for self-defense. A couple of years later, in the Chicago case, they said, "Well, that same right extends to protections or limits on states." The court in Heller initially said, though, that the right to bear arms is not unlimited. Right. In the same way that no other right is unlimited. Um, But what the New York case did was to get us closer, closer to an an absolute reading of the Second Amendment, because it now said that the right to um, to self-defense includes the right to carry a gun in public, notwithstanding the fact that the law in New York State was a law that had been on the books well over 100 years. So what the Mm -hmm. court did there is, again, ignore history. The history of, of New York, where it is, ignore, it's ignoring history when it comes to um, gun regulation. And in fact, it's it's really kind of created this myth around guns at this point that somehow uh, the Second Amendment is becoming this absolute defense. And you're right. I am convinced, as one of my teachers used to say, that some people think that the Second Amendment means an, uh, a right to own an atomic bomb. Right, um, right. I mean, I mean, where, where do you draw the line here? You know, is that is that is that because once you start to say there's an individual right, well, how do you now principally say, okay, um, it's assault rifle or not assault rifle, et cetera, et cetera? But I'm also going to go in a slightly different direction here. You know, you know, so much of our debate right now on guns and gun control. It's obviously on the mass shooters. You know, yeah. it's on it's you know it's 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 on very tragic situations here. What we forget about, and, it's, and we think it's about 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 assault rifles, the vast majority of carnage that takes place in this country with guns is handguns, and it's with what people having handguns committing suicides. Yes. If, if if and so part of what has also happened is we skew the debate in terms of guns and what we've now done is make the mentally ill the the uh, the whipping persons on this situation here and so so whenever we say there's a problem uh well the person had to be mentally ill had to be mentally ill um, and therefore we're going to at least in theory make it harder for mentally ill people to get guns well the vast majority of people who have uh let's say some kind of form of, of, of mental illness are not dangerous. Um, the people who are who are supposedly those law-abiding gun owners are the ones who oftentimes their guns get into the hands of people who commit suicide, who commit domestic abuse against others. And so we've created this entire legal fiction around guns and have also created this entire pop culture fiction surrounding guns in our society too. Uh, the NRA captures it best. It says the best way to deal with a bad guy with guns is with a good guy with guns. It's what? It's a, sh- it's a shootout at the OK Corral, Doc Watson um, kind of image of the world, which is what? 
an image that either never existed hmm. or was so antiquated in our society that one would hope that we've evolved from there. And we are, at least in theory, evolving, I hope. And I, there's, I'm not sure, you know, people don't think about uh, the, the makeup of the court when they vote for president, unfortunately. You know, they'd like, like, ooh, do I like his smile? You know, that, that seems to be the, uh, you know, it, it's somebody I know. Uh, but now I wonder what the average person, what we the people can do. Should we push for term limits? And there's nowhere in the Constitution that says it must be nine members of the Supreme Court. FDR had a little bit of a hard time with uh, trying to expand the court. But your your thoughts on what we the people can do now, briefly if possible. <laughs> okay, a couple of possibilities. One is that uh, not getting involved and spending your life on the social media is not going to bring about change. Yeah. Um, there's, there's two realities here. One is that our political system there's an electoral connection. You've got to push and you've got to show up. Uh, uh, 98% of life is showing up. And you have to vote. But at the same time, um, what we know is that major social change in America only occurs when it grows from what? Social movements that mature to political yes. movements that mature into, uh, um, into political change. Yes. And so if anything, if, if there's any silver lining and in, in let us say the Dobbs, is that I hope it gets my students active. I hope it gets American public active. I know on the last day of the semester, early in May, before, I, I ended my con law class with talking about how Roe could get overturned. This is before mm. the draft opinion came out. And I turned to my students, you know, who were in their early 20s, and I said, this is your world, folks. I said that, that if you folks don't show up, if you don't get involved, if you don't um, um, get politically engaged, right. you're going to lose your rights. And that, I think, is the message that has to come out of that, unfortunately, is that, yes, I wish rights weren't being debated in the political process, but now they are. And now it is the time to be politically active, to be politically engaged, to show up um, and, 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 and show the Supreme Court that what? 65% of the American public doesn't support Roe, and we're going to now elect politicians um, that align with our views, not with that small reactionary minority pushing in the opposite direction. Well, we can do it. We really can. At least I still believe so. This has been fascinating. We could go on for another hour or so, but if people are interested in, in following uh, your work, uh, is there something on the that internet thing, the social media you can point them to? Sure. If you can use your whatever search engine you use, and if you put in Schultz's take blogspot, yeah. um, I occasionally do a blog there, uh, but I'm, I'm a frequent contributor um, to Counterpunch. Uh -huh. And more often than not, um, a lot of the stuff in terms of ideas that I'm playing with, I will do, and I'm honored to do in Counterpunch, which has such an incredible cadre of, of amazing writers. Well, thank you so much. We will see if we can uh, make the change. Maybe, I mean, there's nothing like adversity to organize people. Lord knows. <laughs> there's the Lord. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure. Thank you. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I start and brought up there The laws to abide And that the land that I live in
has got on its side. 